0: You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Tim Abbott on Sunday, August 30th, 2020 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Today we are in Luke chapter 12. This is historically known as the parable of the rich fool. It is one of the many times that Jesus talks about money and possessions. Jesus speaks about money a lot. Uh, one article I read this week said, it is almost alarming how much Jesus speaks about money. Depending on how you want to look at it, Jesus talks about or references money at least 15% of the time that he is preaching, maybe more. 11 of the 40 or so parables that he, that he gives deal with money, and, uh, and so welcome to Redemption Hill, um, if you're a guest. Uh, I'm glad that you can be here on the, on the, mor- the one morning in a long time we're going to talk about money. Um, but the truth is that when Jesus talks about money, and this will be true for us this morning as well, uh, that he is much more concerned with our heart than with our money. Jesus doesn't talk about money to give us strict, legalistic rules to follow with our money. Jesus doesn't talk about money because he's concerned about every dollar that we spend um, He is after our attitude. He is after our desires. He is after our heart and how that shapes our use of our possessions and our wealth. Jesus talks about money and possessions because that reveals what is in our hearts in a way, in many ways, in a way like nothing else. Jesus talks about money and possessions because they very naturally draw our focus away from him. And today, more than ever, there are things at work to draw our attention to draw our hearts away from Christ. Today, as much as ever, we need our hearts to, and, and our focus to be singularly focused on him. In the time that we are living in, there is increasing division. There are people hurting, weeping. Anxiety is at an all-time high. Bitterness is taking hold of people's hearts. This is a time where the reality of what Paul says to the Ephesians, when he says, redeem the time or make the best use of your time because the days are evil that is becoming more and more of a reality for us as christians we have a unique opportunity to care for the hurting to proclaim hope into the darkness to proclaim the gospel to the to the lost but still we spend most of our time focused on money and possessions on on obtaining things for ourselves Our culture, our country encourages this way of thinking, and so it becomes even harder to hear the message of what Jesus is saying and actually change what is going on in our hearts, change the way we think, change the way we live. And so we want our response to a passage like this, to to be able to see Jesus, to be able to see him and to know how we should respond. But often our response to a passage in the Bible when we talk about money is to feel guilty for a little bit. Um, Jesus talks about money and we feel guilty. Um, instead of real change in our hearts, we just feel guilty for about a week. We will feel convicted about whatever our last big purchase was and we will feel guilty about what we hoped our next big purchase would be. Maybe we will give a little bit more to the church, maybe we'll give a little bit more to charity. We hear Jesus talking about money. We hear these things. We hear what Jesus says when he says the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, and then we hear him talking about money, and we feel really, really bad about ourselves. What usually happens, though, is that after that week of guilt, after that week of feeling bad for myself, I slowly just, it just starts to wear off, and I slowly start spending my money in the exact same way that I did before. We don't continue to give generously. That that change that happens because of the guilt for a few days doesn't stay with us. And so my hope today is not to create a week of guilt for you, although it might. Um, My hope is that God will change each of our hearts today. My hope is that we will see how easily and completely greed takes hold of our hearts. And then that we would see God's abundant and overwhelming generosity towards us. My hope today is that God would completely redefine for us how we view our money, that he would completely redefine for us what it means to be generous, what it means for us to be rich toward God. Let's pray. Father, teach us uh, today that everything we need in life we have in you. You have promised to provide for us and you have proven yourself faithful again and again. So teach us to set our hearts and our minds on you, and that as our eyes fix on you, that the things of the world would fall away, that they would have no hold on our hearts and lives, but that we would see anything that we have in this world as a gift from you, and that we would use it only to proclaim your glory. Change hearts and minds today. Change the way we act and the decisions that we make. Make us a church that is known for abundant generosity because money and possessions have no hold on us. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Before we get directly into the passage, I want to go ahead and try to take down a couple of walls for you. Uh, When we talk about money in the church, walls often shoot up and we shut down. Um, So, uh, the first wall is simply that it is okay that we talk about money, it's okay that Christians talk about money. I I personally don't like uh, to talk about money at all. In fact, it is probably my least favorite subject in the world. We don't like to talk about money. It's uncomfortable. We either have too much and don't want to be told what to do with our money, or we have too little, and it just gets us nervous and anxious to even think about it. If we have to talk about it in church, what we would prefer is that we just be told the bare minimum and move on. Like, is it 10%? Okay, let's, let's just get that out of the way and let's stop talking. Um, it is okay to talk about money. Jesus talks about it a lot. It's actually very important to talk about these things. The second wall is that when Jesus talks about money, he is not just talking to make the rich feel bad about their money. Um, so that everyone else for that week in, in, in church, everyone else can just take the week off and feel justified But they are not as bad as those other people. Uh, In college, I had a car named Rosie. Uh, I named a car. I would never do that now, but I did then. Uh, I named her Rosie because she was a blue car with red doors, so she had rosy cheeks. Uh, She had a lot of other colors too. Um, She was basically the car equivalent of Darth Vader. Just whatever pieces you could find were put together and formed that car. Um, The heat had only one setting, full blast. And the horn had two settings, fully on or fully off. Um, At six o'clock in the morning, driving through a friend's apartment, I found that out for the first time as it just came fully on and woke up everybody in the apartment. Um, uh, This might not be a a good idea because you all have masks on, but is anybody willing to uh, guess, guess, I got that, I got that car at an auction. Um, Is anybody willing to guess how much I paid for that car? Any number? $500. $500. I appreciate that guess. That is a reasonable guess for what I just described. Uh, I actually paid $1 for that car. Can you believe that? $100. What $1 for a car. That's right. I know. It's, it is hard to believe. Um, it wasn't, there weren't a lot of people interested in the car. Uh, I had that car for three years. Um, and, and I started dating my wife while I, while I had that, that car, uh, so I never really had to question if Jen was marrying me for my money. Um, I, I grew up relatively poor. The first years of our marriage, uh, I made $12,000 a year, and that's all we had. We lived in a $350 a month apartment. We didn't have much, and so it was always easy for me, and still is somewhat today, to hear a passage of scripture like this and mentally jump past it. Because it doesn't apply to me. I'm, I'm not rich. I don't have a lot of things. So I'm just going to sit back and watch you go get them, Jesus. You tell all those rich folks what they need to hear. Uh, I, I spent, I, but the truth was that I spent a lot of time thinking about money. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to get more of it. I spent way too much time getting angry and bitter at the fact that people had more than I did. Just because we didn't, didn't have much money did not make me immune to covetousness. In fact, I was at great risk, still am, of being filled with envy and covetousness when, when we don't have much. So it can be easy to think if you don't have a lot that this isn't for you. It can also be easy to think that if you have a lot, if you're rich, and, but, but you give, you're, you're somewhat generous with your money, then this doesn't apply to you. You've earned what you have and you feel like you do enough good with it to get you, to get you off the hook. Uh, you can easily be addicted to the security and comfort that you believe you have because of how much you have. And so you build your life in a way that is, that is concerned with maintaining the security and comfort that you have for your entire life. The poor are not immune to coveting and neither are the rich, as this parable will show us. The more and more you have, the more difficult it becomes to let go of those things. Money and possessions simply can't satisfy. And so you always want more. This is just Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. This is um, giving us here. It's, it says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. And he who loves wealth will not be satisfied with his income. You can't have enough you can't have so many things that it just naturally produces a grace-driven contentment. You cannot have enough to produce a grace-driven generosity. The truth is that the people Jesus is addressing here aren't primarily rich or primarily poor people. He has in front of him a crowd of thousands. He has in front of him his disciples, his apostles, um, and it is, this group is made up of rich and poor people. So if if you're here today, this is for you. Jesus addresses each of us about covetousness because covetousness easily grips each of our hearts and minds and makes us consumed with the things of this world. Covetousness slowly and relentlessly leads us away from the life that God has for us. It leads us away from being consumed with the kingdom of God. It leads us away from committing our lives to the spread of the gospel and the building of the church. And so Jesus teaches his disciples then, and he is teaching us today. This passage starts with uh, some bad expectations and a uh, really dumb request. We start in, in verses 13 and 14 of Luke chapter 12. It says, someone in the crowd said to, said to him, said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus replied, man... Who appointed me judge or executor between you? I have said often before I feel bad for people in the Bible who say stupid things and it just gets recorded forever. Um, I've said a lot of dumb things in my life. I've said some really dumb things even praying to God, and I'm very grateful that they have not been recorded in the most read book in the history of the world. Uh, This is the only thing history will ever know about this guy. Uh, As soon as Jesus starts to reply, he had to know quickly that this is not going to go well. Um, Just a few verses earlier, Luke records what Jesus was talking about on the same day to the same crowd. This is what this man had just heard. Jesus has been building the case all day for his followers to not fear man, but to live boldly and to confess publicly and boldly who he is, who Jesus is. And he says this just a few verses earlier in verses four and five of chapter 12. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear the one who, after you have been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. This man had just heard this. Don't fear anyone except the one who has authority to throw you into hell. And he steps forward and tells Jesus to get his money for him. He is standing in front of of Jesus, the almighty Savior, the promised Messiah, the Alpha and the Omega, God in the flesh. And he doesn't ask Jesus to give him wisdom. He doesn't ask Jesus to heal his son. He tells Jesus to get him his inheritance. He tells Jesus to tell his brother, who I assume is probably there, to give him his money, to give him what he deserves. It seems so trivial when you consider the weight and enormity of who Jesus is. And yet many of us would do the same exact thing. This was was the biggest thing in his life right now. And so he goes to Jesus with it. We want God to give us what we want in the moment. And yet Jesus knows our hearts and intentions so well. James chapter 4, James tells us, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You, do not, you, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This is, this is just this guy in a nutshell. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Jesus knows this man's heart. He's asking, but he's asking wrongly. He just wants his inheritance so that he can, he can spend it however he wants to. He sees someone speaking with authority that might be able to get his money for him. The very question shows that that the man had no understanding of who Jesus was and why he was there. He calls Jesus rabbi or teacher. It was common at this time for, for rabbis to act as a mediator in disputes like this. The teachers at that time were thought to be wise, caring men who could discern these situations. So it wasn't completely out of place to bring this to Jesus if he were simply a rabbi or a teacher. But Jesus was there doing so much more than any rabbi or teacher could do. He was there proclaiming the kingdom of God had broken into this world. He was there proclaiming himself as the promised Messiah. But this man simply saw him as someone who could help him get his money. Now, when we read that it is easy to be self-righteous and believe that we would do better in this situation, I think there were probably plenty of other people there who had similar requests that were going to ask Jesus, and they were really thankful that man started talking first. How often do we selfishly and greedily ask God simply to just give us more things, to give us more money so we can buy bigger and better things? How often are we disappointed in God because we don't feel like he's given us what we deserve? We will say that we don't believe in the prosperity gospel, but our prayer life tells a much different story. Our functional life tells a much different story. We can't talk about money in a a church without talking about the prosperity gospel for a couple of minutes, so here it is. Uh, The prosperity gospel is is a false teaching, It is a false gospel that it promises promises that if you have enough faith, that health and wealth will be yours. They cannot be taken from you. We believe that is a perversion of the gospel. We look at the lives of of his people throughout the Bible, and we can see where that falls short. And so we will preach against, speak against, and lament the evils of something like the prosperity gospel, all while functionally living out our personal prosperity gospel. We believe it's wrong to say that God will give you riches if you have faith, yet we envy and covet, we're greedy and we love money, we love that everything that we can get with money. And that envy guides our days, that covetousness guides our decision and leads us to question God as to why certain people are blessed more than I am. We can say the prosperity gospel is wrong, but we can still live like it's true, We still spend a much greater amount of our time and our resources trying to get the same thing that everyone else is, money and stuff, and we think God should be involved in helping us with that. We think because in our minds we know and we will say the right things, that makes us better than all those people who believe and hope in the prosperity gospel. I'm not out to make a case for the prosperity gospel, but I hope that we can see that what we treasure will drive our decisions. What we treasure will define what we do with our time and our resources. What we treasure will guide our actions and our lives. It will guide how we see God, and it will guide how we talk to God. It will guide what we ask of God. How often as Christians are we not satisfied in Him? We're not satisfied with what Paul talks about in Philippians 3 Verse 8, when he proclaims, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Is, is knowing Jesus, does that surpass the worth of everything else for you? We're great with the riches of God as long as it also comes with a certain amount of riches for us here and now. When we should be in a constant state of praising God For all the goodness and riches that have been provided for us by being made a part of the family of God, we have been given an inheritance that can never perish, never be defiled, and never fade. And yet our attention is still on the inheritance that we think we deserve in this life. Our attention is too often on the things of this world, specifically the things that others have and that we want. And so Jesus now tells the crowd, be on your guard After the man asked this question, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them in verse 15, take care and be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The word translated greed is sometimes translated covetousness as well. What it literally means here is a passion to have more. A never-ceasing desire to have more than what you have currently. This is the, ha- the thought behind Proverbs twenty-one, 26. We're told all day long he covets more, but the righteous give without restraint. All day long he covets more. The one who is greedy or covets, that never goes away. He is craving for more at all times. Covetousness is a very subtle sin and it can be very difficult to see it in ourselves. It can be very difficult to actually repent and turn away from. And, I, and yet I don't know if there is a sin that is more common to man than greed. It finds its way into our hearts, so we must be on guard at all times. We must be aware of it and be alert to it, as Jesus says here, against all kinds of greed. Our mental picture... Often of, of greed is someone ridiculously, cartoonishly rich and evil. Mr. Burns in the Simpsons, the Monopoly guy, um, they, they, they are ridiculously rich. They have more wealth than anybody in the world. That's our picture of greed. And often we think that they have gotten there. What the, the greedy really have gotten there by mistreating their workers, by paying people much less than they should have gotten paid. And yet Jesus says here that each of us needs to be on guard for all kinds of greed. What do you treasure more than Christ? What do you refuse to share generously with others? Your time, your things, your opinions, your money, your weekends. Greed takes many forms, and they keep us from sharing with others. They keep us from treasuring Christ. They keep us from being rich towards God. And so Jesus gives us this parable to help us understand. He begins to tell the parable in verse 16. Jesus says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. He had an abundant harvest and it was so good, he didn't have any place to store it all. As far as we know, he came by it Honestly, in fact, a harvest like this would have been something that he worked hard for. It would have also been something to praise God for. God had provided the perfect amount of rain, the perfect amount of wind and sun to bring about a harvest so great that he didn't have a place to store it. This man had an incredible opportunity to share now what he had to share what God had given him, to sell that, 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 that harvest and, and use it for the good of others. If you get a raise at work, if we get a promotion, if you get a new job that pays you much more, do we immediately think, man, this is so good, God has blessed me so much, now I have more to share with others. If, you, if we get that kind of money, if we get that kind of things, What we really want to do with it is uh, what the TV show Parks and Rec calls treating yourself or treat yourself. We think of how it can benefit us now or later. We think of how it can bring glory to us. We think of how we can enjoy it. Verses 17 through 19 of Luke 12 shows us the heart of this man. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said... This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. There I will store my surplus grain and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry." This is uh, probably the only real description of retirement in the Bible, definitely the only description of early retirement. Uh, there's, 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 nothing, there's nothing wrong with working hard. In fact, it is a very, very good thing. There's nothing wrong with an abundant harvest. There's nothing wrong with having a business that does well. That's a very good thing. And there's nothing wrong with retiring from, from work at some point in your life. But when your goal in life is to live for yourself, to work for yourself, to save for yourself, to retire for yourself, to relax for yourself, then you have missed Jesus. You have missed the good that God intends with giving you that great harvest. And so God says to him in verses 20 and 21, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Your life will be required of you tonight. You won't ever need or use any of those possessions. My wife read this a couple of nights ago and came to this part and said, wow, that's a, that's a rough parable. Um, some of you know um, that before I came on staff here to church, I worked uh, with antiques, uh, specifically rare books and documents. And before you think, hey, I've got some books at home. Um, I should take them to Tim. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you what I basically tell everybody. You probably don't have anything that's worth anything. I'm sorry to break it to you. Um, chances are you don't. Um, but so, so I am actually very qualified to answer the question that Jesus poses here. Um, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? More than likely, there is going to be a yard sale or an estate sale. And someone is going to come along and buy all your stuff and sell it on eBay. Um, It's really not worth hanging on to too tightly. Um, It's not worth hanging on so tightly to your money or to your things. And at the end, it just ends up in a nice yard sale. That covetousness, that greed, it deceives you. It deceives you into thinking that you control your life. God's point here is not that he wouldn't have that stuff for very long. As if, he, as if he had had it for 40 years. If he had existed for 40 more years, lived for another 40 years, then he would have made the right decision. Greed deceives you into thinking that a life lived relaxing just for yourself is really life at all. Please don't get me wrong. Rest is incredibly important, but it is important so that we can be strengthened and refreshed for what God has for us. Greed keeps us from being rich toward God, and it keeps us from what is truly life. One pastor put it this way, covetousness is a dangerous sin because it is an enemy to grace. In Christ, we have been freely given new life in him. We have been freely given eternal life in him. We have been given salvation from sin, death, and hell, and yet still for most of us, we are more concerned with what we think we are owed here in this world. We are more concerned with getting the things of this world so that we can be comfortable, so that we can get to the point that we can finally say, I can now relax, I can now just enjoy life. That is not life as God defines it. That is not the life that Jesus came to bring to you. That's why Jesus says back in verse 15 of Luke chapter 12, he says, life does not consist in abundance of possessions. What is life then? It is what Jesus will pray in John 17, verse 3. And he says, as he's praying to God, he says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Life is not having things, life is knowing God. Life is knowing and being satisfied with Jesus. You think your life is primarily your possessions, your wealth. Jesus looks at this man who believes that more money will make him happy, content, and satisfied. He believes more money will give him life, and Jesus says, I'm not here to fill up your life. I'm not here to fill up your your storage bins. I'm, I'm here to help you see that you don't need any of those things. In this parable, the rich man sets his hope on happiness, on an abundance of things, It gives him great happiness to know that he's got more than enough to be able to say, now I can relax and enjoy life. And Jesus says, that's just not life. What Jesus is doing here is so much more than telling us how to spend our money. He is redefining for us what life is. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 18 and 19, Paul is writing to Timothy He is telling him how to care for the people of the church, how to be a pastor to the people in his church, and he gives something specific for those that, that, that are wealthy. He says this in verses 18 and 19 of 1 Timothy 6. He says, "'As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy.'" For all of us, don't set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but put them on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And then he says this, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Then he says this wonderful line, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Store up treasure in heaven so that you can take hold, present tense, so that you can take hold right now of that which is truly life. The man in this parable was trying to store up happiness and contentment. He was trying to store up something he never could, that which is truly life. Life the way it was meant to be lived, true life, eternal life is not about the riches that we've stored up. True life in eternity and true life now is about doing good, being generous, being ready to share with what you have, being rich in the things of God. This inheritance will not bring you life. The money that you so desperately desire will not bring about contentment and happiness. It will just make you want more. To know God, to know Jesus, to know the power of the resurrection, the power that is available to us, and, and then we let that shape and define our affections. Let that shape and define our decisions. Jesus calls us to true life and he calls us to be rich towards him. Verse 21, Jesus closes this out by saying, this is how it will be for anyone who stores up treasure for himself but is not rich toward God. Jesus is calling us to be rich toward God. God doesn't just want us to have less money. Or no money. His main concern is not, is not your money and how much you have of it. He wants us to treasure Him above all things, to find life in Him and count that as greater than, than any amount of riches we could have here on earth. Matthew 13 Jesus gives a very short parable of a treasure hidden in a field. And He says this The kingdom of, God, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, He hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. The man in Luke had an abundant harvest, and he did everything he could to selfishly guard it so that he could live the life that he wanted. The man in Matthew finds God. He finds life in Christ and was so overjoyed that it made everything else lose all value to him. He went and sold everything else that he had so that he could have Jesus. That man was rich towards God. As one pastor put it, rich toward God means moving toward God as our riches. Rich toward God means counting God as greater riches than anything else in the earth. Rich towards God means that we are using our earthly riches to show how much you value God. That true life that God has called us to is a life that overflows with generosity. Generosity is not just a duty. Generosity with your money, your possessions, your time, your gift, your resources. Generosity is something that flows out of a heart that has received the grace of God. Generosity should flow freely, not begrudgingly, because you know that everything you have came from God, and you don't have anything that didn't come from him. In 1 Chronicles 29, King David is building a temple for God, and he prays and shows us exactly what the man here in this parable should have had in his heart. He shows us exactly what he should have done with the abundance of the harvest. This is 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 16. This is David praying, and he says, Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. It all comes from God, and it all belongs to God. So so use it to glorify God. Give it away freely and willingly. Do something to to further the gospel with it. That is what a generous heart looks like. That is is what a heart changed. That is what a heart that is rich towards God looks like. If you read the first few chapters of the book of Acts, you will see a remarkable example of what God does when Christians are not marked by greed or covetousness, but because of what God has done in them, they become remarkably generous. I was moved by this this week. There's one part specifically in Acts chapter 4. It says that all the believers were were of one heart and one mind. And then it says this, no one claimed that any possession was their own. God took a people that just like everyone else had greed and covetousness in their heart and they heard the power of the gospel, they were saved, and now instead of building bigger storage bins to keep their stuff safe, it says that no one claimed that a single one of their possessions was their own. It was all God's. Everything they had was a gift of God and so it was theirs to share. It was theirs to be generous with. It was, it, was, it was God's, so, so they were free to, to give it to others. They were free to share it with those in need. This is so important because what we do with our money and our things speak, speaks volumes about where our heart truly is. If we aren't generous with our money, time, and possession, then we can say all the right things, but they, they are just empty words. You can't say you love your brothers and sisters. You can't say you love the people in your church. You can't say you love your neighbors and others and also spend all your time and resources only on yourself. This is just James chapter 2. James chapter 2, we're told, suppose a brother or sister is, is without clothes and daily food. If one of you tells him, go in peace, stay warm and well-fed, but does not provide for his physical needs, what good is that? So too, faith by itself if it is not complemented by action, is dead. Your love doesn't have meaning. Your faith doesn't have meaning. If, if you are consumed with greed and covetousness, if you aren't generous with your time, your possessions, you can say all the right things, have all the right theology, you can talk about how bad the prosperity gospel is, but if God's abundant generosity hasn't taken hold of your heart, then it's just hollow words. This kind of generosity is possible whether we have much to give or not. It is possible whether we are rich or poor in the world's eyes. I often think in my head, God, if you would just give me a lot of money, then I would be generous. If, if you probably have played this game before, maybe you haven't, uh, where you play, what would you do if you won $100 million? Um, most people almost always, I love it, those, I, they almost always say, well, you know, first I give a million dollars to this, some charity, some church, some something, um, because they want to get that out of the way so that they can get to what they really want to do with a hundred million dollars. We all want to sound generous. We want to believe that we, if we had obscene wealth, that we'd be generous with, with it. But let me just say, if you're not generous with whatever you have now, you will not be generous if you get more. It's just not how generosity works. A generous heart figures out ways to give. A generous heart works hard to be able to give more to others. A generous heart plans their life in a way that they have the ability to to graciously and freely give to others. A generous heart is only possible if it is motivated by grace. A grace-driven generosity enables you to participate in the amazing things that God has prepared for his people. You get to invest. In, in things that have eternal value. So we invest the gifts that God has given you, the strength, the time, the money that God has given you. We invest that into caring for others, sharing with those who don't have much. We invest into strengthening those who are weak. We invest into sharing with those who don't have much. We give our time to listen to those who are hurting. We invest our money into the spread of the gospel. We invest into the building of the church. We invest into those that are going out to take the gospel to those who had never heard it. We invest in the things of God. We are rich towards God. So we have our neighbors over. We use our stuff to encourage others, to strengthen others, to build others up, to share the gospel with them. We use whatever we have to be able to share it with others. You can't take any of it with you. It's going to end up at a yard sale at some point. Don't hold too tightly to those things. Take hold of the things that lead us to life. Take hold of the things of Christ and then let them take hold of your entire life. When our hearts are set on what we don't have but what we want, it steals our joy. It keeps us from seeing Jesus for who he is and all that he does for us. And we start to see Jesus as the one who will give us what we think we deserve here on earth. The truth is the only way to this kind of generosity, the only way to leave greed and covetousness behind is to believe that someone who was so rich, rich beyond our imagination, gave up all of that so that we can know him, so that we could have life. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, as we close, we're told, this is Paul talking to us here, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. God gave us everything. God had owned God owned everything, everything was made by him, everything exists through him, he has it all, and yet he humbled himself. He made himself poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. The only way to stop being all kinds of greedy, the only way to become all kinds of generous, is to know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He became poor. He humbled himself. He became human. And he lived this life without greed, without covetousness, without sin. And he gave his life for us so that we can know and possess the overwhelming, extreme abundant riches of being made a part of God's family. You have an inheritance. If you, are, if you are in God's family, you have an inheritance that is incorruptible. So don't spend your time worried and consumed with the things of this world. Don't be consumed with an inheritance that will fall, fall, fall short of, of what God has provided for you in Christ. We have an incorruptible inheritance because Christ became poor for our sake. And so we can know that, turn to that, believe in that, and live and let our decisions be guided by that. Let's pray, and then we will take a moment to reflect on God's word, and then we'll sing together again. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all of your words. Uh, we thank you for um, that you, you move uh, in, in our hearts and in our minds. Um, you transform us to be more like your son. Father, I, I pray that you would put it on our hearts, um, that, that we would see you, that we would see what you have done for us in your son, and that that would make everything else lose worth and value because of the surpassing worth of knowing you. I pray that that would consume our hearts. I pray that you would help us become a people so in love with you, so captivated by, by your son, so thankful for the grace of the gospel, that we ourselves would become generous, that we would enjoy whatever you have given us, but that we would not be owned by it, that we would enjoy what you have, have given us, but that we would not value it more than you, and that we ourselves would become generous people because you have been so generous to us. That we would be a giving people because you've given us so much. We love you. We thank you. Lead us to a transformed heart. Father, we praise you because you have given us everything. Because everything that we have is from you. And apart from you, we can do nothing. We thank you for it all. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.